Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite. Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall to wall Wi Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey everybody, it's me, your extremely apologetic and extremely unprofessional wizard, Jake, here to give you a heads up that I fucked up big time when recording this episode. I had the wrong microphone input set in Audacity, and so you're going to be hearing my laptop mic feed, and it's not going to sound great. So hopefully this is the worst side effect of the current crisis you'll experience this week. As always, wash your hands, wear your masks, and reach out to the people that matter most to you. Thank you so much for listening, and I am so, so sorry. Hang on, man. I'll tell you what. The dang old, dang old wood bruiser over here going on with a spike club over there. D20 plus strength. And dang old man. Look at what it says. We're both boom power on this. Goddamn natural 20 over here. What's up, everybody? It's, uh, I'm the wizard. Hold a big deal. Uh, yes, that's right. Today we are doing a, I think, a much anticipated episode for a lot of people. So much love for this show, King of the Hill, an animated classic that went up against The Simpsons that, or didn't go up against, I guess, I guess, uh, led they after were The Simpsons. buddy buddies. They were buddy buddies. But uh, just such a such an important um, American show. What an American show this show is! <laughs> in a lot of ways, too, it's almost like the the all in the family of our generation, and it's sort of maybe not as like biting and everything as that. But but definitely, it's it's one of those. I was saying to Jake before this. I think what I really found in going coming back through this show to try to find you know the hook to this episode, whatever that may be. I think it's a couple things. One, I feel like this show is like Cheers. I feel like this is like animated Cheers, animated uh, Frasier, that sort of thing. It's very comfort food, this show. This show is tons of so many episodes. And it's all really, it's and it varies greatly. Like, I don't want to say that it's always like the same as it's super not. I mean, they got a little formulaic in the later episodes. But for the most part, it's still just, it feels like it's always just there for you. And these people are just comfort food, the animated show. And also, at the same time, I think it just so truly represents a specific region, a specific space in America. And all of these people, especially if you grew up in the South, and especially if you grew up in Texas, you knew these people. Like, these these are just so, they're so real to me. All of these characters. And that's what makes them so enjoyable to watch and laugh at and learn lessons with and all of those great things and so yeah it's 
So talking about the nostalgia section, you know, the gush, as you as we like to call it up top here, I guess I'd just say for me, I never thought about it too much. King of the Hill was always just there. It was the show that you were you you were happy to watch. It wasn't upsetting. It wasn't like bad. But, you know, it was kind of like a nice little peaceful time filler while you were sticking around for Family Guy or Futurama and mm-hmm. The Simpsons mm-hmm. all in that like animation block. Of the 2000s. But then there are other, I mean, there are other people who would call it the best show of that block, you know, and who absolutely were thrilled by it. I mean, I was more of a Simpsons guy growing up at the end no, of the we, day. So here's, okay, here's the thing. Here's what's been picking at me because the while we were doing research for this, while I was watching a bunch of these episodes, the thought occurred to me that, like, I guess Beavis and Butthead is more iconic. Beavis and Butthead is more within our uh, generational cohort. Uh, I'm thankful that we're doing this remotely and Holden can't punch me in the face for saying generational cohort in a serious <laughs> conversation. <laughs> but uh, the fact is, is that if I, you know, I rewatched like old Beavis and Butthead clips. I watched the Frog Baseball short and like it's just untempered, young, kind of sneering uh, just kind of everything's bullshit. It's it's just that Gen X rebellion for the sake of rebellion. It doesn't hold up as much. Those feelings are just kind of locked in the past. While watching King of the Hill now as uh, an older adult, it resonates so much more. It, the layers are just so much more there. You know, it's there's still like the it's it's definitely informed by Mike Judge having this very like. Uh, irreverent and kind of confrontational sense of humor, but it's softened by all the network executives and Simpsons writers that kind of sitcomified it, and it creates a more holistic, um, more enjoyable, more layered product than it would have had on his if he had it on his own. And so, watching it now, like you know, I recognize the uh, I recognize what they're doing more. You know, because we were teenagers when King of the Hill was uh, was first coming out. You know, we didn't, you know, it was just like, oh, yeah, Hank Hill's uh, really stiff and Bobby is was me. Basically, Bobby is just me, just an unathletic goober of a creature, (laughs) just constantly horny, constantly fucking up. (laughs) But, you know, now you actually know what the conspiracies that Dale Gribble is talking about. Uh You know just how sad Bill is. You Uh know how much Boomhauer fucks. It's not like. It's been a great experience to rewatch it and reappreciate the show. And in terms of the longer lasting effects, in terms of the bigger cultural impact, I genuinely think King of the Hill overshadows Beavis and Butthead, despite the fact that it didn't sell anywhere as near as many uh, bootleg T-shirts in the 90s, Um, not counting the incessant... Uh, turned down for what parody shirts that I saw in a lot in college. <laughs> um, yeah, and Mike Judge even was asked this question. There was a really good IGN interview with him about King of the Hill and his other work, and they they were like, "Yeah, did 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 you know? Did it ever bum you out, or or was it ever weird that uh, I don't know the exact wording of the question, but that you know you weren't really as in the press as say Family Guy or shows like that?" And he said, "Well, Family Guy has a really interesting story." Where, you know, they they got canceled and then they they got picked back up because they became popular in their own right after that via DVDs. And it's like a really fascinating story, whereas King of the Hill really just was a successful endeavor and was just ran very smoothly for many seasons. I mean, the only big crazy moment is when 
Fox was like, yeah, we're done. And then they're like, actually, no, come back for three more seasons. So there's like two different series finales in that show. But other than that, I, I mean, it's really like Mike Judge himself is like, we just we were just slow and steady wins the race. We were just always able to do our thing in our corner. And it's so funny because even in the uh, Cartoon Wars in episode of South Park, you know, the King of the Hill guys are all just kind of hanging out, relaxed, <laughs> just doing their job in the corner while, you know, while all the screaming argues have you around them. So it, it's it's I, I believe that. And, and I just that's what I love about Mike Judge so much. He just seems like the consummate professional. He seems but very funny and very fun to work with and just really honest. Like, I lo- I mean, who doesn't love office space? And it's ta- if you've ever worked in corporate culture, you ha- I mean, I just uh, it nails it. He's so good at taking these slices of life and putting them in a com- comedy format to shed light on just how absurd these things are and how, you know, ridiculous these characters are that we have to we're forced to deal with, whether they're your neighbor or they're your co-worker. He's so good at that everyman character. And, and you know, which is so funny because you look at Beavis and Butthead and, and it's so outlandish and ridiculous but i mean that was that too he nailed kids at that time like yeah in a more in a more exaggerated degree uh but yeah and and uh by the way learn more about beavis and butthead and daria on pop history we're doing like brother sister episodes this week and ours- well, then would you say this is a podcast crossover crossover (laughs) absolutely i will say that and it's been a blast learning about mike judge and about greg daniels and about the show i will say i'm going to be a little more brief about mike judge's career before he got to king of the hill because i'll probably be expanding on that more on the other show i'm here more to focus on his work and life um especially you know leading up to the creation of king of the hill uh, and it's wild, amazing run. I mean, so many episodes, 13 seasons. Uh, it's hundreds of episodes and uh, people just still love it. And I think that it, it, especially these days, people are probably finding a lot of comfort in episodes of King of the Hill. So, Jake, shall we start? Shall we get into it? As we might say. Let's get this nanny started. <laughs> I wish I could do a good impression of the opening theme song, but it's kind of hard. Something like that. Is that it? Is that work? Ding, 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 Well, it's a triangle, as we'll find out. The teacher learns from the student. That doesn't make any sense in this situation. But Jake will be teaching me. It sounds like more about the song than I even know. Okay, here we go. Let's start, though, with a bit of a bio on Mike Judge. I mean, I definitely want to talk about uh, how he got to King of the Hill, and you have to talk about his earlier animation work because of that, uh, to get to that. Mike Judge spent his younger years in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he spent some time working on a chicken farm. And he graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Physics from the University of California, San Diego in 1985. He worked very briefly in physics and mechanical engineering, but quickly became bored in the field of science. And he ends up moving to Silicon Valley in 1987 to join Parallax Graphics, which was a startup video card company based in Santa Clara. That's right. Mike Judge worked on GPUs. He got them gigaflops. He made sure that Quake ran on your weird dad's PC. That He was a gamer. Hated 
every second of it. He, of course, this is his inspiration for Office Space. It was only like one year, and it's so funny. He talks about how, like, I talk about my uh, real estate insurance job, you know, where it's just like, just a suffering, just dealing with these absurd people every day. Office people are so, like, can be so boring and yet so ridiculous, and you just are forced to spend more time with them than even maybe your girlfriend or, you know what I mean? Like, or your your partner. It's just so sad. Like, you're just shoved up against these people in cubicles. Of course, he becomes incredibly alienated by the culture there and refers to his co-workers as being, quote, like the Stepford Wives. And if you know that book and movie, that's an idyllic Connecticut uh, neighborhood run by happy husbands and uh, big spoiler alert, by the way, guys. Spoiler alert for several wives. So just skip this. If you, never, if you want to know the reveal and they're robot wives. Bum, bum, bum. You know, I mean, I get it because every office I've worked in, when if they find out I do comedy, God forbid, they say the same thing. Oh, I bet you're going to write a lot of funny bits about us. A lot of funny, funny skits about us. They always call them skits. And you, you're just like, no, because you literally are all sort of the same. You know, well, it's and you make a good point about how almost throughout Mike Judge's career from the uh, basically up until Silicon Valley at this. There's actually a very weird shift in his worldview that happens with the success of King of the Hill. Maybe we'll get into it later. But up until like Beavis and Butthead and into King of the Hill, the perpetual Mike Judge villain is some skinny like goateed guy who just very authority with like very well coiffed hair who just just very passive aggressively asserts authority with utmost confidence mm. it's like everyone everything from bill the uh or mm-hmm. whatever the the boss character from uh, office space to like the myriad of yoga instructors and like government workers that Hank constantly has to be put up against to even the, uh, the guidance counselor that, you know, is constantly trying to redeem Beavis and Butthead. Uh-huh. It's the, the, just the innate hypocrisy of presenting yourself as not flawed, as just like somehow trying to tell someone what to do without the implicit threat of, or else I'll kick your ass. Just right. Just rings phony and just infuriating to my judge <laughs> and to me. And he quits <laughs> pretty quickly on he, to become a bass player in a touring blues band. In 1989, Judge sees animation cells on display in a movie theater, and he goes off and purchases a Bolex 16 millimeter film camera to create his own animation shorts in Texas. And he's also going to a lot of like animation film festivals and things like that taking This in. name has come up a lot but the Spike and Mike Festival of mm-hmm. Animation was mm-hmm. this touring uh kind of an, like outsider animated shorts I guess touring festival that would go to places like Austin and Portland and cool cities and play at indie theaters and it's places where tons of uh, people whose, whose names we you should know yeah. uh, like Craig McCracken unveiled basically the pilot version of the Powerpuff Girls at it. Don Hertzfeld, who Hertzfeld has done... is the best, dude. So many mind-bending shorts. Just go look up Don Hertzfeld shorts on YouTube. You, If you've never heard of him before, you hopefully will die laughing like I did when I first watched them. And as a guy who loved, like, renegade comedy, who, like, really resonated with that kind of almost... It's not, you know, it's punk rock without being punk rock. And animation gives you so much control. You are responsible for literally every frame of animation. 
And through Spike and Mike, he actually saw that, like, it doesn't even have to be that professional looking. It can be rough around the edges. You can shoot it in, you know, it doesn't have to be the most fluid animation. It doesn't right. have to be immaculately colored. You can, as long as the heart and the joke of what you're trying to do rings out, anybody can really do it. And so he starts producing these inbred Jed shorts. Yeah, and, um, and Office Space, his short film, also referred to as the Milton series, which was in, ended up actually getting purchased by Comedy Central after getting attention at these different and at an or actually at a specific animation and festival in Dallas. It was also aired on SNL, which yeah. I, is so weird to me because I, if you rewatch them, like without the context of like, oh, this is Mike Judge, right? Oh, this was going to become Beavis and Butthead. Oh, this was going to become Office Space. It's just this weird, like it's weird. This is weird, gibbery, cringy interaction between just a very upset. Uh, it's Milton, you know, yeah. as uh, it's Milton just getting shat on and demeaned and threatening violent revenge against his coworkers. Right. I mean, I remember watching it. I think I did see it for the first time on SNL and remembered really being into it and thinking it was it was funny. Um, there's a really great short that uh, I looked up. Uh, it was kind of this is more the precursor to King of the Hill. It's just called Honk Question Mark by Mike Judge and. It, it's still fucking it's just a minute long and it's this like this classic Bubba guy the same you know basically it looks like a prototype bill from King of the Hill and I'm using the B word Holden I know I'm not allowed to use that word uh-huh. but that is the word that Mike Judge constantly refers to for these kind of southern Texan uh, guys that he was just obsessed with drawing. It's just this this guy on a reclining chair like in a half uh, domestic beer drunk haze watching as a health food store commercial just starts getting angrier and angrier at him or it's 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 you know just dead-eyed and it cuts back to the tv and the guy in the commercial who is the classic mike judge villain is just like so you're just gonna feed uh, poison to your kids huh huh you stupid piece of shit huh you're just gonna go to mcdonald's and kill your kids you fucking piece of shit <laughs> And it really highlights just like the tone and like the the authorial voice that Mike Judge carried for a very long time. So in 1992, he develops the short film Frog Baseball featuring two young roustabouts named Beavis and Butthead. For MTV's animation showcase Liquid Television in 1992, we have, of course, talked about Liquid Television before, a very cool animation block. This is insane. Uh, For Frog Baseball, he like, he submitted it for Spike and Mike's and then just at 27 years old, picked up a phone book for New York City and just got every possible address and phone number that he could possibly send his animation tapes to MTV. And that's how he got it on the air for Liquid Television. It became a viral hit, you know, as much as you could in the cable days. And that's how he got Beavis and Butthead uh, produced. We, we should almost do a smash cut to just like, and then Beavis and Butthead was incredibly popular. Yes. I mean, it just, if you didn't, if you weren't growing up during this time, Beavis and Butthead took over for especially teens, middle schoolers. It was a cultural phenomenon. And it, and what sucks is you can't even get the full effect of it nowadays because that when they re-released it, they didn't do the music video part where they would just sit on the couch and riff on music videos like Mystery Science Theater. And that was one of my favorite part. That was maybe my favorite part of the whole thing because not only were you laughing your ass off w- with Beavis and Butthead, but you were also exploring and discovering n- new music. To uh, you know that 
that was where I first saw like a Primus music video, uh, uh, a tool, a tool music video. Bjork. That was the first time I ever laid eyes on Bjork. Yeah. And, and it was just, again, I, I can only use the words cultural phenomenon when it comes to Beavis and Butthead. So this series is uh, Judge voices both of the characters along with many of the supporting characters while writing and directing most of the episodes as well. And it led to a feature film and a spinoff show, Daria, which we were, again, pop history, check us out. We'll talk about it more. The character named Tom Anderson on B&B, on Beavis and Butthead, that is, uh, I just put B&B in my notes, is actually a precursor of Hank Hill, including the catchphrase, that boy rat in the episode where Beavis works at Burger World. The voice is identical. It's literally the Hank Hill voice. And uh, it was initially pitched as part of Mike Judge's, you know, initial concept for Fox Television uh -huh. that Hank Hill was going to be Tom Anderson's son. Mm -hmm. And it was just the rival company, you know, he, the rights would never work. So that idea was quickly dropped. So let's talk now, I think is a good time to talk about Greg Daniels, because you don't have King of the Hill without Greg Daniels. So it basically the timeline basically breaks down like this. Mike Judge is has the is the godhead of this cultural phenomenon. He just released a moderately popular movie, and he is a hot commodity. Over on Fox, they've been trying to fill the after Simpsons time slot for yes. a couple of years. And there's a little bit of corporate behind-the-scenes shenanigans happening where um, uh, a new head of programming is a guy named John Matoyne, and he's trying to in improve Fox's, I guess, stand is standing as a proper network rather than just the place where Married with Children and The Simpsons do naughty things. Uh, <laughs> he helps secure the rights for the NFL. He starts highlighting a lot of different sitcoms, including some really bad ones and some forgettable ones. Uh, but around the time of this, uh, the follow-up for The Simpsons is a show called Ned and Stacy, starring Deborah Messing and Thomas Hayden Church. <laughs> Does not fit in at Fox. <laughs> And so they're, you know, they want new animation programming. And of course, who's the biggest name in animation at this time? Obviously, Trey Parker and Matt Stone. They couldn't yes, get them. They so get they Mike Judge. <laughs> um, and Mike Judge produces, he basically just almost from the get-go draws Hank, Dale, Boomhauer, and Bill standing around outside of a fence holding beers with little thought balloons going, yep, 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 uh-huh. And mm -hmm. that's his concept is just these good old boys. I, I don't think that's you don't. Are Texas boys good old boys or are those different boys? No, uh, Bubba's is what Mike Judge refers to them as and what he says they call them in Texas. That standard, you know, middle aged white man with the, you know, tank top or the, you know, the and the beer gut and the jeans and whatever. Yeah, like, yeah, they're Bubba's. And unfortunately, even though they still desperately want Mike Judge, they want the Beavis and Butthead successor to be on their network to follow up the Simpsons. Sp spiritually, it almost makes perfect sense. Mike Judge is basically the Matt Groening of his era, even though we're just talking about between the early 90s to the mid 90s. But it makes sense. He's this outsider guy with a very mean and observant streak in him. And they want that that kind of counterculture energy. But it needs a little massaging. And the same way that The Simpsons kind of emerged into being this more wholesome and relatable sitcom, 
they knew they'd need a ringer to kind of smooth out the edges and flesh out the universe that Mike Judge laid out for them. And the guy they tapped was Greg Daniels. Greg Daniels. His mother worked at the New York Public Library and his father was president of ABC Radio Network. Yeah, you know, just your classic good old boy, a (laughs) Brooklyn-born son of a media executive. A real bubba, if you will. He was first inspired to get into comedy by watching Monty Python's Flying Circus as a kid while reading books by humorist uh, S.J. Perelman at the age of 11. So this is the kind of guy kid we're talking about. And I believe uh, Perelman was a humorist on uh, The New Yorker, I believe. I could I may have gotten that wrong in college at Harvard University. Uh, he wrote for, of course, the Harvard Lampoon alongside another uh, great aspiring comedian, Conan O'Brien. And the two end up going on to take a job at not necessarily the news after they graduated. This was a sketch comedy show that I don't even think I've ever seen an episode of that was on HBO in the early 80s. I'm kind of curious now to go back and take a look at it. But they were soon fired due to budget cuts. In the late 80s, O'Brien and Daniels still together. They meet with Lorne Michaels, and they're given a three-week tryout as writers on SNL, which leads to them winning an Emmy before leaving in 1990. After SNL, Daniels joins the writing staff at The Simpsons in 1993. Dude worked on some bangers. During the show's fifth season, which, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and lay down the gauntlet, is the best season of The Simpsons, full stop. After many of the original staff left, he took over. Uh, while there, he wrote episodes like Homer and Apu, which got him another Emmy nom for the song Who Needs the Quicking Mart? And I it- do. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And in season six, this man, after my own heart, he wrote the fucking toaster time traveling segment on (laughs) that year's Trails of Horror, which is arguably might be my favorite like segment of a not my favorite episode per se. But I I was screaming with laughter the first couple times I saw that. Um, I wish I wish I hadn't sat on that fish. Oh, look, it's raining outside. And then the donuts come down right after he leaves. Oh, it's so heartbreaking and hilarious. He also did uh, Homer Badman, which uh, kind of eerily mirrors the first official episode of King of the Hill, where, you know, Hank is supposed like through a series of horrible, unfortunate understandings. People think he's beating Bobby Um, the same way that people through a series of unfortunate events think Homer is grabbed a babysitter's butt. Um, Bart sells his soul is another one of his, and that was a classic. Uh, remember Alf? He's back in pog form. And he was one of the supervising writers on 22 short films about Springfield, maybe one of the all time classics. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was actually for that episode tasked with linking all the stories together. And I agree, Jake, besides the Lemon Tree episode, Lemon of Troy, which is the name of my band in high school, by the way. 
22 short films about Springfield may be the greatest Simpsons episode of all time. It is it is incredible, incredible. Um, but anyways, I digress. This is not a Simpsons episode. I could do an entire episode on those two episodes, by the <laughs> way, probably. Oh, that would be a fun project. Honestly. I, I mean, yeah, I'd have to pull out my Simpsons encyclopedia that I have stored away somewhere. Also, half the writers are on Twitter and are just bored all day, and they will <laughs> answer our questions. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, um, the, the setting for the show is Texas, of course, and based on the suburbs around Dallas in which Mike Judge lived, specifically Garland... Of course, it's Arlen, Texas, which doesn't actually exist, uh, and frequented uh, these places he frequented while starting out in animation, uh, mainly Richardson, which had a lot of alleys right behind houses, which were perfect for standing around, drinking beer, and drinking beer in. He put together a pitch for his management and the Fox Network execs that included illustrations of the main characters and a pilot script. They came back a bit uncertain whether or not the show had legs, and that, of course, is when they pull in Daniels. Now, Mike Judge says, okay, cool, but you have no idea what what I've been living in. And Judge takes Daniels to Texas to acquaint him with the world of the show. Uh, Daniels uh, takes all of this in, and this is where he adds a lot to this pilot that Judge had been working on, namely Cotton Hill. So this is what Daniels says. Daniels, when he talks about what he needed to add, he said that, he truly loved the authentic voice and all the observed details that Mike Judge brought to the table, and he loved Hank. He yeah. thought Hank was almost a perfect character right off the bat. He wanted to just change everything around Hank Hill to get more out of him, and that's why he adds Luann, because Hank is uncomfortable with sexuality, and this is going to be the foil for that. He adds, um, he adds the father, the, the, the Cotton Hill, uh, who, who, of course, puts strains and stresses on him and is very boisterous and difficult to deal with. Again, it's just ever, all these little changes. It's his call to uh, make Dale a, conspir- a right-wing conspiracy <laughs> nut and to give him a unfaithful uh, wife and yes. a bastard son. Which is one of the early, funny, weird, like kind of heartbreaking touches that you get when you start watching the show. And yeah, uh, essentially, yeah, he just wanted to just place all of these items around Hank Hill in order to just get more, more, put more stress on him, put more strain on him. And this is where we get to the pencil test, which is brilliant. So it, it takes obviously so much work and so much effort to actually animate a pilot episode. And they didn't have the full green light for the series yet. So instead of spending way too much time and money and effort on a full pilot or even a short pilot, they just have this pencil-drawn Hank Hill talking to camera, talking to the executives, and he's pitching the the Fox executives on making a show about his life, and then we get introduced to his family and the neighbors. You know what? It's it's actually really fascinating to watch this because it's pre-production voices, pre-production final designs, and Hank Hill, you know, Mike Judge as Hank Hill is literally speaking directly. He says like, hey there, Mr. Matoyne, referring to John Matoyne, the head of Fox at the time. Yeah. Mary, if you can play a short clip of this pencil test, it's easily, you can find it on YouTube. Just like, just listen to, this is what got the show greenlit. Well, Mr. Matoyan, I'd say y'all got the makings of a damn good cartoon here. I mean, you got my wife, Peggy, and she's real smart. She teaches Spanish. 
I sure do. Yo have low espanol. Isn't that something? <laughs> and I'm real proud of my boy Bobby because he, uh, uh, well, because he's my boy. A bee stung my head. Put some ice on it, son. And Luann's living with us now since the tornado. Hello, Hollywood. Love your movies. <laughs> She'll probably be real good for ratings, the way she dresses. Of course, uh, I got my neighbors, too. Dale, Bill, and old Boomhauer. Hi. Howdy. Dang old TV executive think he calling you about a million and a half times now. Gripe about y'all every time the dang old Loon Tunes come on, y'all put on that, that, that dang old Melrose place. Oh, Boomhauer ain't right. So they got the whole series greenlit off of this. And so, therefore, they did say it was a bit of a pain in the ass because especially going into that first season, this also meant that because they didn't have anything out there for an audience to react to, that the executives were giving, like, tons of notes, and that seemed like a bit of a pain and a bit laborious for them. But still, they got the whole season greenlit. Uh, and so, yeah, um, Daniels rewrites the pilot script, and Mike Judge is so happy with it. And especially because what Daniels does is essentially takes Mike Judge's sociopolitical humor, uh, his, his observations on society and things like that, and, and, and really pumps it up with a lot of character development. And that gives it the emotional foundation that the show needs. And it was so important to judge what he did that he actually gave Daniels a co-creator credit for the whole thing, which is a big deal. And he didn't have to do that. So, uh, yeah, it just it, it they were just this dream team to make this thing happen. And so in preparation for the show, also, this is where we're going to talk about Greg Daniels, had the writing staff read a book published in 1995 called The Death of Common Sense by Philip K. Howard, which argues that law and bureaucracy are making individuals abandon their common sense and live and communicate with each other in fear. So when you think about Hank Hill, you think, oh, you know, this conservative guy, but he's still trying to do well. And I think this is something that the show really does uh, impressively is it balances these political, you know, almost more philosophical differences in how to conduct a society with Hank perpetually as the outsider, either kind of pushing back against racism and bigotry and cruelty, uh, because that's not what it, he was raised, you know, he was raised with these values of strength and individualism and dignity and the various in efficiencies and the cruelty that can happen even in uh, a heavily regulated, heavily socialized society. And uh, the core of the death of common sense really boils down to tort reform because it was, it was a big deal at the time. This was the era of the McDonald's lawsuit, the slip and fall. Everything was, everything was, you know, it was a, it was a highlight of, you know, things have gone too far, but I push back that it's good to inform the character but there's still like a little bit more to it than that. Um, at, at the end of the day, I, there's a, there was a book that came out that was almost a response. See You in Court is a book by Thomas Guggenham, who is a, another economist who kind of just like takes the arguments. You know, when we look at tort reform, when we or when we look at lawsuits and the overregulation of society, where we have. You know, this, you know, people claim that there's this dream that if we have enough rules, nobody will be treated unfairly. And the end result is everyone is treated unfairly in their own way. But in reality, it's just because the common person 
And because the average worker lost the protections of union contracts, just everything got shittier. And the only thing left, the only weapon left for average people against things like corporations, against things like unfair uh, business practices, against like, you know, even just exploitation was suing people, was, was, you know, regulating safety through not just like having a good union, but through begging a congressperson to make a convoluted law about it. And, you know, if we lived in a world that was that, you know, kind of tilted the power back towards average people, you would be you wouldn't have to, like, be constantly on alert to, like, see who's trying to fuck you over and how you can fuck over them. Everyone would be secure with, like, an actual you know, a actual contract, not a social contract to treat each other fairly. It, it definitely gives Hank Hill's character way more believability and it grounds him so much more in a solid uh, philosophy. But the, the core, even, even the core foundational text of where Hank Hill comes from, you know, is still a little bit flawed and could still be like tweaked a little bit. I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> For sure. So, Here's a quote from Mike Judge about his approach to creating episodes. Well, it's usually putting Hank up against something really annoying and ridiculous in the modern world and just making it as annoying and ridiculous as possible. Like the mold episode, where the mold inspector comes to his house and he's got to live in a hotel. Also, all the characters and just having them really humiliated and embarrassed, like when Hank was constipated or when Peggy tried to join the beauty pageant. I think those are two formulas, if you can call them formulas. So I thought that was kind of fascinating. Uh, so let's get into this cast of characters and this amazing voice cast, shall we? Besides Hank Hill, Mike Judge also voices De Jeffrey Dexter Boomhauer III, Hank's indecipherable neighbor. Uh, Boomhauer's trademark, actually, his trademark mumbling... This is a great story. <laughs> it came from an angry voicemail left for Mike Judge, a reaction to his previous show, Beavis and Butthead. Mary, could you please play for us Mike Judge in his own words, because he does Boomhauer way better than I could of how he got the character of Boomhauer on Jimmy Kimmel. I got a voicemail once from this just deranged hillbilly guy with the thickest... I apologize. The, yeah. <laughs> I, just lit my, I just lit my acreage on fire. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> that would all make sense now, yeah. Now, this guy was like, uh, he, he thought the name of the show was Porky's Butthole. <laughs> I don't know how you get Porky's butthole out of Beavis and Butthead, but I still have the message. It's like, oh it's like my a, God, it's a so minute good. and a half long, and he's just like, and this is actually, <laughs> this is where I got the voice later for Boomhauer on King of the Hill. This guy, this guy, he, he his message started out. He goes. I've been calling y'all for better than a month now. I grab about y'all every time that bang old Porky's butthole come on. Porky's butthole. I mean, it's just the funniest thing ever. I love it so much. Uh, uh, and yeah, it's just, it's such a great, and, and the way he tells the story is so funny. He's so, 
I, I just want to hang out with him and have a couple beers so badly. So Peggy Hill, moving along, is voiced by Kathy Najimy. The fucking KJ! She's so KNJ. funny. KJ! She's so great. She got her started in New York City doing plays, which led to odd small character roles in films throughout the 90s, such as The Fisher King and one of my favorite movies that I grew up watching a lot with my father, Soap Dish, which is a hilariously very underrated comedy movie starring a lot of really funny people. But she got her first major role as Sister Mary Patrick in Sister <laughs> Act. She's great in that movie. She's a really funny comic actress. Uh, and that led to fun parts in films like Hocus Pocus is another big one for her. Mm. She was one of the main witches. Uh, Najimi said, I was seven months pregnant when I got the call and went to the studio. I auditioned for Peggy by improvising and I just started talking and the producers looked at the wall and not at me while I improvised. They wanted to hear my voice so they could picture me as Peggy. I had no idea what was happening at the time, but I got the part. And other people have spoken about this. They would actually have pictures of the characters on the wall and they would look at the character instead of the actor. So yeah, the uh, voice actors were behind a screen. They couldn't see the producers and the producers weren't looking at the actors. They were just staring intently on large printouts of the character sheets, just trying to imagine the voice attached to the character. Bobby Hill is voiced by Pamela Adlin, who was a child actor that started out at the age of nine, who attributes voice acting to saving her career as she was struggling after being a child actor to get work in her 20s. Her first voiceover role was in 1989 as Ket in the English dub of Kiki's Delivery Service. So there you go. That's an interesting one. Hill said, the thing about women playing boys is that we're not going to age and we're not going to go through puberty in the middle of a long running series. I used to take over for a lot of boys whose voices would crack and change. My voice is on the lower resonance scale, so I just naturally go into the boy mold. And in fact, uh, Brittany Murphy, I believe we're about to talk about in just a second, she voiced the role of Dale's Joseph. Joseph until he goes through puberty in uh in an in an episode I'm gonna highlight in a little uh, a little later, that episode of course being I don't want to wait for our lives to be over, and she got replaced by a uh, a male actor because he had gone through puberty which on the show which is kind of funny. Ironically enough though, they did bring back that same voice to play. I believe in the episode it's another it's a different bastard child of John Redcorn. Ah. And so, uh, and Joseph starts flirting with her on not realizing they're related. <laughs> and it's, and it's Joseph's old Brittany Murphy, basically just doing Joseph's old voice. Uh, Dale Gribble is voiced by Johnny Hardwick, who is actually spotted. Ugh, this is like what everybody wishes could happen to them. He was spotted by Greg Daniels at a comedy showcase in LA. Hardwick is Texas born and he went on stage that night to tell some stories about his family and upbringing and Daniels just approached him afterward and offered him a job as a writer on the series which led to an audition for the part of Dale. Hardwick said I had some kind of epiphany while listening to William S. Burroughs one night and I just got it. I ended up kind of basing his attitude on if he thought he was Jack Nicholson but he wasn't or if he just thought he was the coolest guy around like Matthew McConaughey's character in Dazed and Confused. The thing that they did have in Mike's original plot was that he was a conspiracy person, which I thought was a great touch. So I love that. He's Jack Nicholson, but he's not. It's one of the great things about uh, Dale's character is as the series goes on, that Jack Nicholson edge kind of like 
recedes a little and all the insecurities and weakness start shining through brighter and brighter. Uh-huh, uh-huh, and then totally. in moments of confidence, he'll go back to that Nicholson zone, which is very funny. Totally. Um, Bill Fontaine is voiced by the hilarious Stephen Root. I love Stephen Root. He's so good. A show, honestly, I would do an episode on at some point. He was put largely on the map by his eccentric billionaire character Jimmy James on the sitcom News Radio. I think News Radio is one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. It is an incredible ensemble cast. The writing is so funny. I just love that show. I I would it was because I had a high bar. I was like there were only like a few shows that could make me actually laugh out loud. You know what I mean? Like while watching them. And News Radio was one of those shows. And of course Stephen Root would go on to play Milton. The Mike Judge's character in the uh, live action office space, and he kills it. He's so funny in that. Of course, uh, the character that put Mike Judge on the map was Milton uh, initially in, in, in that case. So there you go. He originally auditioned for the role of Dale, but it didn't feel right. So, quote, he said, I picked Bill because he was easy to click into and it was fun and easy to play. And later he would voice Hank's boss, Buck Strickland. According to uh, behind the scenes, like fluff documentary they made for King of the Hill, uh, after Stephen uh, read for Bill, uh, there was silence because he did it over the phone. And then after a beat, uh, Mike Judge, in the voice of Hank, just went, well, that was as funny as it could have been. (laughs) And told him he got the job. Yeah. He's so good in everything he does. He's just such a great character actor. All these people, really, including, of course, the late, great Brittany Murphy, who did the voice of Luann. Murphy grew up in New Jersey and actually convinced her mother to move them to L.A. so she could pursue acting at a young age. Her big break came from the film Clueless, which led to a slew of film work. Uh, Another crossover, pop history. We did an episode on Clueless. I talk a lot about Brittany Murphy on that as well. And so this leads to a ton of film work. But like Steven Root, this gig was her first real voice acting work at just 19 years old. And the name Luann Platter actually came from a Texas-based chain of restaurants called Luby's, where you could order a Luann Platter, which was an entree, roll, and a side. And the show had its own version of Luby's, Lulies. Just a little slight name change. You have to acknowledge that how much Brittany Murphy brought to the role of Luann, because mm-hmm. she was cynically at it. Like, you know, even, even in that pencil test, she doesn't even speak... They just show her and Hank and Hank Hill just goes like, I bet she'd be good for ratings. What with how she dresses. Right. And every according according to the producers, everyone else who tried out for that role just like did a ditzy blonde, just did the same voice over and over. Just looked at the drawing under like just was like, OK, I get it. Like, haha, ha, blonde. And Brittany Murphy claims that she just did it as a trailer trash teenager who was living in her head at the time and had come from the brightest corner of her brain whenever she did it. That interview, every time I see an interview with her, it makes me so sad. She seems so sweet and so great. And uh, yeah. But there's a volatility to Luann's performance as well. She can, like, fly into a rage at the drama of the hat. Yes, which I love. And I think the depth of that character and the amount of plots and the amount of story that they gave her is a direct result to the 
layers that Brittany Murphy's performance gave every time she kind of wandered into frame. Every every line reading makes you think like, oh, there's definitely more of a story to this character. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Toby Huss is a acclaimed comedy actor who did the voice of Cotton. Yeah, as Cotton, well as of course. Khan Susanusaphone, which <laughs> it's very hard to – not hard. It's your brain in t- in 2020 goes like – it raises many eyebrows sure, whenever he does that. the voice. Because he's just like he's – he's just like he's a white guy. He's, you know. he's a white guy and he does like the, hey, what you doing? Right, like, right, right, Asian right. guy voice. But the, you know – in the, the same way that uh, the same way that South South Asian fans can look at a poo and be like, "This is fucking disgusting" because it's a white guy doing an Indian voice, or they can look at him and go like, "It's so great that finally my community is even on a hit television show after uh-huh. being ignored for so long." It's it's a lot up to individual interpretation, right. but the the inter- like you know the the Laotian community the uh, the vibrancy of like basically. What was a massive influx of... With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Post-Vietnam refugees into Texas is a huge part of Texas culture. It is an indelible part of Texas culture. And King of the Hill would not be as true if it didn't have all this weird enclave politics that that character ends up bringing on board. Also, it took I didn't it didn't register at the time, but Connie, his daughter, is named Con Jr. <laughs> <laughs> like they say it a couple of times, and I, it didn't quite click. But like watching it again, I was like, oh, that's funny. Her name is Con Jr. <laughs> <laughs> and they call her Connie. Her friends call her Connie. So. The show ran for 13 seasons and reached 259 episodes from 1996 to 2009. That's over a decade. Judge said, we didn't plan an arc and definitely not for 200 episodes. We debated in the beginning about having them age possibly and then quickly decided not to. The only time you really see aging to break off from the quote is with the puberty with with Dale's kid. But I think some of the characters have evolved a little, especially I think Peggy became more interesting around the second season. If you listen early on, I think some of the voices, particularly Dale's, have evolved a little bit and I think gotten better. But overall, I think part of the strength of the show is that it doesn't change a whole lot. At one point, there was a note from an executive who's not there anymore that we need more life-changing episodes. And they were trying to apply that theory that works on some shows about just constantly shocking the audience and having crazy things happen. I think you do that too much and then you don't have anything left. I think part of the strength of the show is that we haven't changed that much. I like shows like the old Bob Newhart show, where you can pretty much see something the first se- in the first season or the last season in one of those episodes and really everybody stayed pretty consistent. I think that's one of our strengths, and I actually I agree, and that was my point that I made earlier, but in from Mike Judge's mouth specifically, and I it really does I feel like again I come back to this comfort food 
ideology that can work so well for so many very successful long long running shows. You you want you want to see a little bit of growth. You want to see your characters get challenged and things like that. And I think they do that constantly on King of the Hill. But at the end of the day, you're always going to come back to the four guys in front of the fence. You know, you're always going to come back to Peggy saying English in a bad Southern or saying Spanish in a bad Southern accent. You're always going to have these tropes and these things. And that reliability is, it can be such a comfort. I feel. Okay. Dad. <laughs> so judge and Daniels, however, do take a step back from the show in the fifth and sixth seasons, which led to it be becoming more formulaic. And in the seventh, it was fully taken over by John Alston. Alt Schuller, I know I'm going to say that wrong, and Dave Krinsky, and they pushed the humor more into a socio-political direction rather than the character stuff, with the network even pushing them at this point away from character development and multi-episode story arcs because they are closing in on syndication at that point, and they want to be able to replay, replay these episodes out of order and not have it affect anything. On top of that, the show kept getting bumped for sporting events. Uh, the curse. Yeah, that's Sunday Night Curse. The sporting events going into overtime. Entire episodes were being pushed. Uh, this is now the ninth season, by the way. We're getting pretty late in the show's run. It's The episodes are being pushed from the ninth season to the tenth, which was originally intended to be the show's last. But Fox kept the show going after that to the staff's absolute surprise they had literally cleared out the office judge said it was a little weird there was going to be another season when they uh when they then said okay that's the end this was a little over a year ago and so we did our last episode people moved out i believe is it lucky's suit is the uh lucky's wedding suit is it's a really fun episode especially as a testament to how much the staff Loved Tom Petty's yes. character, Lucky. Tom Petty. It, it, many special guests made cameos in the show. Snoop Dogg, Johnny Depp, Chris Rock. But Tom Petty is probably the most memorable one because he was so reoccurring and so great at his role. Well, the most memorable one is Chuck Mangione for its just <laughs> sheer absurdity and the amount of times he just keeps coming back. <laughs> so Tom Petty played Luann's love interest, Lucky, that we just talked about, and was originally described, the character Lucky was originally described as Tom Petty without the success. And that led to the team just saying, what if we actually just got Tom Petty? And Mike Judge had this to say, and he said, yeah, I'll do it. And he was great. Just killed at the table read. Then he said, anytime you want me to do it, I'll do it. Turns out he really meant it. And he just, he just would do it at, you know, whatever they needed him. And he was so funny and so great. And of course, it's so sad. He has, of course, passed away. And Mike Judge uh, uh, said he, he, rem- he will always remember him fondly that they just loved working with him on the show. It also serves as a good uh, season finale, series finale, because it brings about the original thing with the death of common sense because the entire plot is driven by Lucky trying to entangle Dale, then Hank, then everyone into a slip and fall, a, a <laughs> frivolous slip and fall yeah. uh, lawsuit. Because, of course, Lucky got his name because he slipped in some piss at a 7-Eleven, is it? At a convenience store, some kind of store, and uh, was able to sue for a bunch of money. And that's what he lives on now. And he doesn't have to do anything. So that's why his nickname is Lucky. Uh, so to finish out that Mike Judge quote, he said, people moved out of their offices and animators got other jobs. And several months later, there was kind of some rumors about them picking it up, but I didn't really believe. And then suddenly they wanted it back. 
So it was a little bit of a scramble to get people back because he had to call one of the phone and be like, uh, <laughs> we're back, I guess. And so even though the ratings were actually very steady in its final seasons. And I think they made the jump to HD at that point. Uh-huh. And it, yeah, it definitely had a, a cleaner look. Fox announced the show's cancellation in its 13th season, which coincided with their announcement of family, the Family Guy spinoff, The Cleveland Show, taking over the time slot. Fox gave them a one-hour series finale on September 13, 2009, and this consisted of a normal episode, because I think at this point they had backups. I think they even released a few episodes later, new episodes later during syndication. So it consisted of a normal episode and a finale episode, a proper finale, a second finale, because uh, Lucky's Wedding Suit was the first so Holden, uh, did you rewatch any episodes this week? Uh, I know you were you were double slammed on a Mike Judge uh, double decker sandwich of research. I definitely have some notable episodes to talk about that I perused. Uh, the number one highest rated episode on all the lists, and it won an Emmy. And honestly, it's so good. Bobby goes nuts. I the, was gonna. I don't say. know you. That's not my purse. <laughs> episode. I was it's, gonna bring it up. That's not my purse. Has stuck around as an even more long-lived meme than like I tell you what or that or all the other t-shirt slogans that the show tried to put out there uh Bobby goes nuts season six Bobby gets bullied so he goes to take boxing classes not just the- bullied he was made to eat dirt by Chan Wasanasa. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to take boxing classes the class is full and he ends up in a woman's women's self-defense class where he learns how to kick people in the nuts, which he uses to get revenge on the bullies. I love that it, w- it won an Emmy. It won an Emmy for Outstanding Animated Program. That's so Oh, no, funny. no, not so. I'm sorry. It was nominated for an Outstanding Program. Uh, it was actually Pamela uh, Adlin. Pamela Adlin. That won the uh, Emmy for Best perf- uh, Vocal Performance by a Woman in an Animated Series. Uh, so you also have, I, I just pulled a few that I revisited that popped out at me based off of the many lists online. If you ever, I, I mean, I feel like I do this with every TV show because I'm never able to necessarily watch like an entire series, especially one with 200, over 200 episodes that are its belt. And of course, I've seen my plenty, my fair share of King of the Hill growing up and everything. And even just when it like came, what it came back on, what Netflix, I believe or whatever. And it's on Hulu right now. So uh, here's another one. Peggy Hill, The Decline and Fall. That was in season four after Peggy. The, there's a cliffhanger at the end of season three where Peggy jumps out of an airplane and her parachute doesn't open. So in this episode, we see her put in a full body cast. Meanwhile, Cotton and Dee Dee's new baby GH is giving them a hard time. Hey, and- Holden, what does GH stand for? What, uh, wait, what does GH stand for? Good Hank. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, so Peggy tries her best to stay positive, but finally breaks down when she can't help with GH until a touching moment happens at the end. Maybe I won't spoil it. I won't spoil it. Just watch it. It's very good. It's very cute. Peggy Hill is an amazing character. She yes. has so many, like, just out of nowhere in great laugh lines. And one of the things is how... You know, in a typical sitcom, it's the, you know, the everyman Joe husband and then the snarky, drop dead gorgeous, know it all wife who's just always having to clean up the boys messes. And it's funny how Peggy sees herself as that she has been trained by society to be that. And yet she is just as flawed as all the other characters and that weird kind of. Uh, confidence and expectation and uh, the way that she kind of carries enlightened uh, principles, 
but ones that have been kind of diluted and telephone gamed across. It's the same way that fashion takes way too long to reach the middle of America. Mm -hmm. She has all these ideas about uh, justice and equity and, you know, progressivism that she just doesn't quite understand, but like still says like full confidence. And she's like, you know, Hank loves her. Uh, she's confident, even though she's self-conscious about it, but she's not like, she's an average, she's a normal woman. Happiness. Yeah. <laughs> Happiness. Uh, she's so funny and reminds me of so many of the Southern ladies that I grew up around. They were like my mom's friends, even my mom a little bit. With their gigantic feet. Yes, with their huge feet. It, it, it's really funny. Like she, she really uh, resonates for me. When it comes to the people I actually knew growing up in the South. Uh, another one, if you're a Boomhauer fan and a Brad Pitt fan, Patch Boomhauer. Oh, such a good episode. Season eight, Brad Pitt guest stars as Boomhauer's brother. And the episode puts a spotlight on Boomhauer as a more complex character, as well as on family dynamics. Very good stuff. And the other one that I mentioned earlier, that is my last one to talk about, was I don't want to wait for our lives to be over in season five. Bobby is absolutely devastated after he gets back from summer camp thinking he's really had like a big growing summer. But Joseph returns from camp and he's fully gone through puberty with a lower voice, facial hair and muscles. And this makes Bobby feel inadequate until he finds out that uh, Joseph is actually really having a hard time with this transition. Also, of course, Bobby never goes through puberty for the entire run of the show, which is hilarious. But he did, how horny they make him like varies. <laughs> he's, it's, it, when they're writing him at his best, he like has the innate understanding that he's supposed to be horny, but doesn't know what that means or what he should do about it. So that those are the episodes I have. If you have any more you wanted to bring up. A great episode. Maybe one of the it's very sitcom -y, but it really highlights a lot of what King of the Hill can do is uh, Ho Yeah, which is an episode from season five, episode number 13, where one of Hank Strickland's girls named Tammy basically, through a series of circumstances, gets Hank to be her pimp as she hooks herself around Arlen, uh, getting the ire yes, of so Snoop Dogg as Alabaster Jones. And rewatching this episode... Reminded me of the moment that I truly loved King of the Hill. And it's just a such a dumb joke, but I love it so much. Uh, Hank is being chased in his dad Cotton's Cadillac by Alabaster Jones. And it's this very weird car chase. And at some point, Hank confidently just stops the car and everyone starts freaking out at him. And he's like, don't worry, I got a plan. And he... <laughs> just drives through the yellow light trying to trap the pimp from stop for stopping at a red light. <laughs> at which point uh, the pimp then just drives through the red light and the incredulousness and shock that it doesn't work on Hank's face is so clutch. And he just like, he's just looking through the river mirror and being like, he just ran a red light. You can't do that. <laughs> It's That's just so my, one of my favorite gags, just the just perfectly executed. Another one that is really good is Aisle 8A, another great Hank is Uncomfortable, where he's babysitting Connie when, and she gets her period for the first time and he has to deal with it and how he deals with that. One that's like very interesting if you if you want to get into the weeds is uh, Dale to the Chief, another season five <laughs> episode where Dale after reading the Warren Commission report, goes to Dallas to investigate the Kennedy assassination and realizes the official story is probably true. 
and he creates this amazing comedy turn where he just loves America, walks around in an Uncle Sam hat, and it cuts into a lot of 2000s politics because uh, Hank is embroiled in a dispute at the DMV where he got a license that got his gender wrong. And because the DMV was folded into a security apparatus in a post 9-11 world, him fighting with the DMV gets him like put on a terrorist watch list. If you are sensitive about uh, gender stuff, uh, unfortunately, this 2005 sitcom episode written by a bunch of Generation X dudes is not as enlightened as it could be. But if you can look past that, it's a very good cut of history. And the last one that I want to say, uh, as a weeb, Holden, I don't know if you knew this, I'm a bit of a weeb. I don't know if this has come up on the show before, but I appreciate the culture of uh, Japan. No. Yeah, I, it's, it turns out I like anime and specific snack foods from that region. Dude, let's go to let's go to uh, Kamarocho, man, and s- <laughs> try to stare down some Yakuza. That's not a real neighborhood. That is from a video game, but <laughs> yes. Uh, the two-part episode, Returning Japanese, has Hank Hill accompany mm. his dad, Cotton, to Japan where he meets his half-brother Junichiro. (laughs) And the way that it carries, you know, it does a lot of culture shock stuff, but it kind of nails the tone where the Hill family is a little bit ignorant, they're a little bit uncomfortable in foreign cultures, and they make a lot of, there's a lot of, like, jokes, ha-ha, at the, you know, oh, the, 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 the Bubba's, the Hicks, they don't know what they're talking about. But they each character has so much humanity and has so much goodwill that, like, there's no hatred behind it. There's, we're laughing with these characters. And Bobby gets embroiled in a Dance Dance Revolution scene. So, you know, that that's fun because it was the 2000s in Japan. Hell yeah. That's a really great episode, a great two-parter. And uh, that one also was truly fantastic. So I have some tidbits, some housekeeping to close this out. But before we get into that, I definitely have to talk about this thing you sent me. The uh, King of the Hill. Oh my God, I would have blown right through that. Yeah, the King of the Hill animation help. And I think this speaks to what makes this show so special and what makes this show so different from other animation shows. So the thing you have to understand is that this was, uh, the animation was storyboarded and timed out in animatics in America, but the actual animation work was done by Rough Draft Studios in Korea, which we have brought up a ton of times, all the way back from our Simpsons episode, our Invader Zim episode, our Ren and Stimpy episode. Rough Draft comes up a lot because they were basically one of the best animation houses you could get to work on a TV budget for your show. And for a sh- for something as grounded and as highly specific in tone and location as King of the Hill, they just needed to update the list of rules for animators and storyboard artists to create the tone that Mike Judge wanted. Uh, resulting in this production document, there's actually tons of production documents yeah. in, uh, I forget... It's located in the Texas State University San Marcos Repository. Uh, Just 118 boxes of production notes that if you have the right academic credentials, you could go there and rifle through. But uh, one of the things that came out was a list of over 60 specific do's and do nots for animating King of the Hill to keep the tone consistent. And it's so specific and so insane and it's very much about realism and not being too cartoony uh, just to pick a few out just right up off the top no blinks during acting transitions uh, don't look into the camera 
Um, don't drink with the mouth open and do not hold the eyes closed during drinking. Uh, keep Bobby's acting deadpan, which I think is hilarious. No limp-wristed or cartoony gestured males. I love this uh, how to draw uh, Peggy. Uh, uh, how, to, how to draw... Peg, not to draw Peggy too shapely, make her more realistic, and they have two different, like, a sexy Peggy, and she's wearing her, like, nighty and looking seductively, but she looks like a real woman and a, re a real shaped woman, and then this, like, other one that's, like, animator's dream Peggy, and it's just, like, look how the neck's too thin, the breasts are unrealistic, the, like, it's just, it's really fascinating, um... Dale does not flip his shades up. That's funny. Dale's cigarette doesn't make puffs unless it is specifically requested in the script. Even stuff like um, here's here's one that I really love. It's rule number thirty nine: you will never no desert cacti or tumbleweed shots. That is completely wrong for this part of Texas. This is not of the Southwest. Research the locations from nice. reference instead of making it up when you're when you're storyboarding the show. Yeah, there's just stuff about lighting, sound effects, everything. It is so comprehensive and it's animated as or not animated illustrated as well so you get this really comprehensive fantastic guide in terms it's just such an insight especially if you're interested in creating your own animated show or, or project or something i think that this is so useful to look at and peruse through it's so much so it's the if the tone of the show really points out that they don't want to draw attention to the fact that this is animated you know, uh, planning out where the camera is, making sure that it's from an angle that makes it believably within the room as the characters don't have it pan out so far that it looks like it's it, there's a invisible fourth wall taking place. Managing the horizon lines, mm -hmm. making sure that uh, the, if you're doing a long shot where you can see the background of Arlen, that there's enough cars and pedestrians nearby so the town doesn't look like it was ravaged by an apocalypse. Everything's in place to make sure things are grounded. And what the end result is you have something that's as relatable as a live action show. These characters yeah. and this world feels more real, but you can change locations. You can have the kind of things that uh, would blow out a live action budget totally out of out of whack. But because it's all drawings, you, you have a certain amount of freedom and uh, uh, just just a liberal use of cuts and yeah, locate basically locations. Yeah, that you couldn't, uh, you know, it's not a three camera sitcom where everything has to be contained in the same four rooms. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, there are 64 rules total. We'll try to remember to post it on uh, the group Facebook page. If you look up uh, King of the Hill animation help and then Imgur, you'll get to the post immediately. I don't know. This has had uh, 308,000 views. So it's definitely made the rounds every time King of the Hill comes up on Reddit. I'm sure. So just a few tidbits to close out. Fun facts about the show. The opening theme is called Yahoos and Triangles. It was submitted by Mike to Mike Judge by an Arizona band called The Refreshments. It is an instrumental track that they would actually perform during their sound checks and just happened to work out for them really well. And yeah, that's right. It is Triangles. It's in the name of the song. I can't believe I said cowbell earlier. Bobby's school, Tom Landry Middle School, is actually named after the Dallas Cowboys football coach of the same name and is a real school located in Irving, Texas. Hank's dog Ladybird is named after First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson. I believe that's Lyndon Johnson's wife, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think just one more here. Judge voiced Monsignor Martinez a, on the show, a gun-toting Catholic priest that the Hills would actually watch on TV. Kind of a heightened telenovela pastiche that was, it's, it was the itchy and scratchy of King of the Hill. Uh, and Fox eventually filmed a live-action pilot of it that was never released because, I don't know, maybe a gun-toting Catholic priest in live-action didn't quite work as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, that's that's about all I have. Do you have anything else, J uh, Jake, before we close out this episode? Uh, the last little tidbit I think uh, I should talk about is the 2000 Windows CD-ROM game called King of the Hill. I d you can download it off of several abandonware and archive software sites. It's completely, you know, out of print. You can... It's a 307 megabyte ISO file. You just have to mount it. Uh, I know all you game pirates out there already know how that works. Uh, and it is boring as fuck. It reused a lot of online Macromedia Shockwave games that were available for free at the time. And it's just one of those uh, real just bad mini game collections. You know, mini golf, lawnmower race, tic-tac-toss. But there's a ton of original voice acting from the cast. So if you're really, I mean, truly hurting for <laughs> King of the Hill content and want to hear kind of disjointed sound bites of Dale Gribble and Hank Hill talking about how you need a different gun to shoot a buck that size, you should check it out. Awesome. All right. Well, that about does it. I had a blast this episode. That was so much fun to go through talk about i love mike judge he's so great maybe someday we'll do an idiocracy or an office space episode so i don't think we're done with mike judge just yet because those films are great his career continues to be wonderful and i just love love the stuff he puts out i just love his whole his voice um so yeah there you go uh, check us out on patreon if you'd like to support us further patreon.com forward slash whizbrew wait is that where we release bonus episodes every week oh my god jake i'm pretty sure it's where we release a bonus episode every single week of our lives for five dollars a month including our landmark hour-long conversation about the nature of gamer rage i think so i think that that's exactly where we do that five dollars a month every week you get a bonus episode that's all it takes thank you so much for everyone who continues to patronize us as we uh, go through this craziness that we're going through. And what else am I going to say? I was going to say twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. I am on a 10-day streak. I have done 10 streams in a row, and many of them are Ring Fit Adventure streams. I'm sweating it out for you guys. Join us. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I will, May 1st, unless something changes, I will be doing a 12-hour stream for COVID relief. So ch definitely check that out. We're going to have a ton of great people pop in. Jake, I would love to have you come in and do like an hour with us of Absolutely. sorts. That would be so much fun. And we'll, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll start booking that out and actually put a schedule out soon. Oh, can I pitch a title? Yeah. Podcast All-Stars to the Rescue. <laughs> yeah, maybe that'd be good. That'd be good. I like it, Jake. Then we can Then we can paste your your dumb friend's faces on that old uh, 90s cartoon anti-drug poster. Jake, where can I follow you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Best Jake Young, where I post all of my thought droppings. And uh, hey, if you're listening from page seven, sorry? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Also, uh, of course, and remember, I'll keep on whizzing. Dang old man, you're going down that road, you're walking down, you see a path that gets before you, there's a devil down there, man, but you got to keep on bruising. <laughs> 
This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day, and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.